Is your family a success? Is there even a measure for family success? We think there is, and with a 20-year track record of success, we're going to show you how to bless your family with success in your health, relationships, and finances. I'm Steve Keen, and I'm Katie Keen, and along with some awesome guests, we are going to give you our secrets to family success. Welcome to Family Success Secrets. Hi, everybody. Today we have with us Caitlin Ward. She is a professional in the communications field. She has a bachelor's and a master's in public relations. She co-hosts a comedy and general knowledge podcast called Amateur Intellectuals, where they discuss intellectual topics with a laugh and a cocktail. She currently lives with her daughter, her husband, and two dogs in the DC metro area. And she has an amazing story to tell you today. So Caitlin, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Really, it's an honor. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Yeah, we really appreciate it. So when we met you, we just were so enthralled with what you've been through and your story and the depth of processing that you have gone through. So would you be willing to tell our audience a bit about you and your backstory? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important to to share stories. So let's, let's dive into it. I was 27 when we were pregnant with our first child and everything was really exciting as it usually is. We lived across the country from our family. So it was very much an independent journey, but, you know, staying in touch and check-in appointments and all that and texting a lot and whatever. It was a really, really beautiful, exciting day-by-day experience. I felt really good. It felt like my body was doing everything it should be doing. As a side note, as a person though, I'm, I tend to be anxious. I tend to be a perfectionist. So I liked the idea of control. I liked this new experience of being able to let my body know what it was doing and kind of take a back seat to it. It was perfect and everything was in place until it wasn't, which is what everyone says about everything. But it absolutely was the truth. At about... 30 weeks and two days, not that I was counting, I was taking a walk and it was a route I had done a million times before as a routine. And it felt like I was qualifying for the Olympics for some reason. I was exhausted. One foot in front of the other on this, it was probably about a three mile just walk around the neighborhood. It seemed impossible to me. I couldn't breathe. I was just, and I thought, huh. And it, it, my brain did not naturally think pregnancy. I just thought, that's weird. How am I so out of shape all of a sudden? I went home. I actually had a blood pressure cuff at home just because I wanted to watch it. My husband has had issues occasionally with blood pressure. So it was just a tool in the house. And I thought, "Eh, I'll check my blood pressure. My mom recommended because I got on the phone with her, you know, check your blood pressure, make sure everything is okay. It was really, really high. So I thought even then I still must have been in some sort of denial because I thought, I have an appointment. It's probably 10 a.m. now. I have an appointment just by chance at 3 p.m. anyway with my OBGYN. Do I really want to call and go and make a big fuss about this? Or is it something that I could just wait until truly like three or four hours from now to deal with? So to my mom's horror, I decided to wait. (laughs) I'm just going to wait. It's fine. It's fine. I'll just take a nap. It's fine. So I did go to my, my scheduled appointment, told her about my symptoms. She was concerned. She, she also took my blood pressure. My blood pressure had skyrocketed even higher from where it was before. 
So at the time, she was kind of thinking preeclampsia. She was very careful, as I think a lot of OBGYNs are. They're not going to throw out ideas and and necessarily call things anything. They're just going to be on high alert and keep you calm and and whatever. So not to overshare, but I had to take a a urine test in order to check if there was protein in the urine because that's a big uh, problem if it is. And that was what it came back with. So she told me that I had to go immediately to the hospital, immediately. I mean, so still, I think my brain, my brain was still behind everything else thinking, okay, but I mean, no, it's not time. It's not time yet. I'm only at 30 weeks. I mean, my belly truly was not even really showing at that point. It was just a little bit thought, no, but okay, I guess. So just kind of wide-eyed, I decided that it was time to listen to the doctor and go to the hospital. I'm really glad you did because blood pressure and pregnancy, after having five kids, I know that that is just nothing to mess around with, but you were a brand new mom. I mean, you didn't even, this was your first pregnancy, right? Mm -hmm. So thank goodness you had that doctor appointment and that you took your blood pressure and that you could see the difference in how it had gone up from earlier in the day till evening. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Well, how how did you get to the hospital without making it worse, your blood pressure? I mean, how can the doctor go from I don't really want to alarm you. I've got an ambulance coming, though. So just sit tight and we're going to pop you to back. But you had to drive yourself, huh? Mm-hmm. I did. What a juxtaposition that is. Stay home. Yeah. You're, yeah. Gonna, you're going to the hospital. Everything is really alarming, but you have to stay calm. It's vital that you stay calm. Neat. For somebody that is super organized and in control, you know, I'm somebody just as a person that I'm fueled by the stress of things. You know, I, I thrive on it and I move with it. So the idea, no, I mean, does not compute. And yes, I did drive myself. Fortunately, it was just down the street. It was truly half a mile or so. But I drove myself I, and truly clueless. I mean, again, just on the phone with my husband, I said, I, I'm going to the hospital. Why? Why are you going to the hospital? Uh, <laughs> something's wrong. And so, okay, okay, you know, I'll be there. I'll be there. It was definitely your feet move. And you do what you have to do and you listen and you seem to look back on it after the fact. And I wouldn't even put that just in my situation, just any traumatic or stressful moment where you have to act. I think your feet kind of do it for you and your brain, you can marvel at it later, how you seem to keep it together. But for some reason, uh, you know, okay, sure. I mean, I wouldn't fight the doctor, certainly. So I got to the hospital and then I, I, I remember very, very vividly. It's one of the staples of my memory of this experience was getting admitted into a room and feeling so overwhelmingly like this was wrong. This is wrong. This is not how this is supposed to be. And I was in the bathroom of the hospital room because they had asked me to change out of my regular clothes and into a hospital gown. And for some reason, that visual and that feeling of like taking off my life as I knew it putting on this new one, it was truly, it was truly transformational in a very scary way. And it felt very real. And I, I lost it then. And I, I just cried in that bathroom and I just took a moment. I wiped my tears. I thought, okay. And then I just put my chin up and I walked out in my hospital gown and got into the bed and, and moved on to the next thing that needed to happen, you know? Wow. And so many people, I think, find when we look back, we can relate to that. I remember walking from the NICU after my firstborn and having to head back to the Fisher house, which is like a Ronald McDonald house. And even to this day, I remember what shoes I was wearing and I remember all the steps I took, but yet 
I don't associate a lot of feeling with that time because I think it was shock or something. I, I believe that is a very old defense mechanism that we have to have in place in our, in our bodies and minds in order to be able to not just crumble in that moment. It's so easy to, in, in any situation like this. Yeah. At that, at that moment though, I, it wasn't as horrific. Like that was the worst to that point was just that moment of, of getting ready for whatever was to come. And I couldn't anticipate, I couldn't plan anything. So that was a fun, uh, a fun cherry on top of the lack of control, right? Let alone, is this baby going to make it? Am I going to make it? What's happening? But then truly they got me into the bed. They were really concerned, as I said, with my blood pressure. Not that day, but over the course of a few days, I was put on four different blood, blood pressure lowering medications because it was so enormously high. I can't remember the numbers specifically, but I really feel like the top um, of the blood pressure was, I want to say in the 150s. And it's supposed to be in the 120s is good. I feel like it was 150 over, I'm making this up, but it was something like 150 over 110 or 150 over 100. And so truly everything they could think of to try to get my blood pressure down. And meantime, I don't feel like I'm panicking. I don't feel particularly different. I just feel lethargic. But I went in on a Monday and then again, thank goodness that my doctor's appointment was like not, you know, over the weekend or, you know, the next day, the next business day. And then it turned out that that Thursday was the time that she ended up coming. Now, I was unfortunately strapped to the bed because they were concerned about me having a seizure and they didn't want when the nurses weren't there, they didn't want me to fall out of the bed during a seizure. I didn't end up having one. And again, I trust the healthcare providers. I, I wasn't, it wasn't like, what's happening to me? What are you doing? It was not that at all. It was, what do you need me to do? I mean, here, here are my wrists. I mean, what, what do you need? Because we're going to keep this baby alive, right? We're going to do this as a team. We're going to, we're going to work together. And so it was just a lot of waiting, a lot of sitting in a bed, um, trying to sleep. And then on Thursday morning, I ate some breakfast. I had a bagel and then I felt like it just didn't sit right. So, you know, just a little bit of pain in my, in my stomach. I thought, oh, okay, it just, you know, just didn't sit right. I had her heartbeat on my heart, on the heart monitor and things so we could hear her, you know, her heartbeat, her hiccups, whatever. And it just felt like a little bit of indigestion, you know, that little bit of sharp pain sometimes that you get in the side. I told the nurses about it and, you know, I just continued sitting there. That was about, I want to say around nine-ish, somewhere in the, in the mid-morning time. And by noon, I was so hunched over and I couldn't breathe and I couldn't speak. And it turned out that in that very short amount of time, my liver was distending and it was getting increasingly painful because it was trying to rupture. And the liver is one of those organs that is a no-go zone if it um, breaks. <laughs> it's, not something, it's not something you can really reason around. So truly, I was just doubled over in pain. And I, I, I thought I was sure I was dying at this point. And it happened so quickly from eating a bagel in the morning to feeling like, I don't think I'm going to survive this. I actually remember just, I remember very vividly too, how my brain was preparing itself. At that point, I, again, am a nervous person. I get, I fuel, you know, I get stuff done because I, I overthink and I do, and I'm organized. And I remember thinking, which is the most uncharacteristic Caitlin thing that my brain could produce. And it was it's okay. Like if I don't make it, 
Greg will raise her. Like my husband, Greg, my, my husband, Greg will raise her. It's okay. He's a good man. He's, he can handle this. You know, it'll be fine. And I remember absolute and utter letting go of that fear of like, it'll be fine. I've got people who love me. I've got people who love her. She's surrounded by all these people. She just needs to make it. As I say, as a conscious person that's not in going through the pain and the probably preparing to die, I, I really believe that. No, that is not something that I would have given up so easily. That is not something I would have just been fine and would fall asleep for. It'll be fine. So it was an emergency C-section. The, it turned out after the fact, we did not know what it was. They thought it was preeclampsia. They told me after the baby was out and everything was said and done that it was actually HELP syndrome, H-E-L-L-P. It's an acronym for high elevated, oh, sorry, high enzymes of liver, low platelets. So it's a, it's a very, very ugly, mean big sister to preeclampsia. And the mortality rate is very high. And about one in a thousand women, the last time that I checked, get it. And again, the mortality rate at one time was 50% because women don't catch it fast enough. And the doctors don't catch it fast enough because it's a matter of hours from the onset of symptoms to death. So I was the lucky one in a thousand. And uh, fortunately, I was already hospitalized. So already being in the hospitals probably ultimately would save my life because I would have screwed around. I would have wasted time until it was really, really bad. And then you figure you have minutes for the doctors to see you, for them to decide what needs to be done, what course of action. And you don't know that you're going to make it in that time. So the only cure for HELP syndrome is immediate delivery. And so that's what we did. We had an emergency C-section. She was born that afternoon at 5 p.m. Wow. And she was only 30 weeks. Mm -hmm. 30 weeks. Yeah. And two days. Yeah. Gestationally. So how did that feel? I mean, you knew you had such a fragile, tiny baby after you had almost died. Yeah. I saw her when she, you know, they held her up. She was very, very tiny, two pounds, nine ounces, no fat on her whatsoever. She was very red and kind of translucent looking. She just wasn't ready. She wasn't finished baking. So she came out with a good hard scream, which was always a good sign. And the the NICU nurse or yeah, the, the not the NICU nurse, the nurse in the operating room uh, said, I think this is a really good sign. Yeah, this baby looks really strong. We've seen much smaller than her before. So it's looking good. Just try to stay calm and get better. And another thing I'll add that I thought was so important was they had to give me a spinal tap because of time and just to try to just do everything as quickly as possible. By then, you know, again, everything was getting real. My husband was dashing from work to get here in time to see the delivery of his child, let alone perhaps his final hours with his wife. So it was definitely a very lightning fast situation. But the the nurse in there grabbed my hand very, very strongly. And as they were putting the spinal tap in and was like, this is a great day. This is so exciting. Your baby is going to be born today. Can you believe this is going to be your baby's birthday? Like, what day is it? You know, everybody, what day is it? So just turned around the narrative because again, I I just picture myself with these giant eyes, just looking at everything and not taking it in quick enough. So I appreciated that, I guess, strength and just forcing the narrative a little bit differently because I I totally ate it up and and it helped me as I was about to lie down and, and deliver my daughter. Wow. What a powerful mindset shift that, that gave me goosebumps hearing you tell that story, <laughs> the power that she had in that room to help you 
and everyone else in there, but especially you. That is amazing. What a blessing. Oh, I was very lucky to have that that group of people that were working on me and making sure that we came out the other side. <laughs> so yeah, so she was little, again, two pounds, nine ounces. She was in the NICU for 43 days. We had to get everything obviously quicker moving because we hadn't anticipated. So you know, things like breastfeeding. My body certainly wasn't ready for that yet. So we had to work on that. We had to just visit her and do the kangaroo care, you know, where they do skin to skin contact. We had to do that way sooner than we were anticipating. But again, we were really lucky. We lived really close to the hospital, probably under a mile away. So I insisted that I could go to the NICU every day. They were a little you know, nervous about it because of my C-section. And I thought, try, try to stop me. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not leaving her. So I was in the hospital for nine days and then they let me go. And that was a really hard day because I had to leave without my daughter. And that is a very unnatural feeling to, to leave the child you just brought into the world and go about your business while you know your baby isn't with you. But what was the alternative? They wouldn't, if they'd let me camp out in the NICU, I would have, but unfortunately, (laughs) you know, you have to leave at some point. (laughs) Yeah, you do. Especially the changing of the nurses. They make it go out. (laughs) (laughs) You're visiting for a few hours. So how how quickly after the, after the C-section or was it before you were actually able to have your daughter for the first time? Because I imagine they had quite a lot to do to make sure she was stable, but they had quite a lot to do to make sure that you were stable as well. Good question. So she ended up going into one of those incubators right away. And I was not, I I was allowed into the NICU and I was allowed to see her. And I want to say maybe the next day I was allowed to touch her, but it wasn't, they were very, very specific about how thin skinned she was literally because I was not allowed to pet her, you know, as if you would be nurturing or rubbing the back or rubbing the head. I was under strict rules that I was not allowed to do that. All I was allowed to do was to put my hands kind of through the the holes and then I could hold where her diaper was and then I could hold where her hat was to kind of simulate that she was in the womb, just that kind of tight, compact feeling. So I was allowed to do a gentle sort of I don't know what you would call that, but I wasn't allowed to hold her for a few days because they just needed to make sure that she was healthy. And I'm not ashamed at all between the hormones and not being able to hold her and the fact that she was in a NICU and underdeveloped, not ready. I was a mess. I just remember, and I'm sure the NICU nurses see this every day, day in and day out, but I I would be fine and then I would be a sobbing mess and then I would be fine. And they would treat it like so just, yes, we know. We're not surprised. You should be crying. This is a hard day, you know? So it was a very supportive environment that I didn't feel like I had to also then be ashamed or, or embarrassed. It was just, yeah, this is a sad situation. You're reacting correctly <laughs> to a sad situation. It was very good in that sense, but it was hard. And then by the time we got skin to skin care, I didn't want to give her back. <laughs> Was was she at, at any time on a ventilator, respirator, or any other type of life support type system? Mm-hmm. So they had her not exactly on a, on a ventilator. They had her on oxygen for many, many, many days. And I will never forget that sound either. The, there's a specific sound of that machinery. It's like a tink, tink that every time the, the, the oxygen level gets to an alerting level, that's a sound like an alarm clock. I don't think Greg or I will ever forget. And then actually when she was set to leave, she was four and a half pounds. The day of, they were debating whether or not to take a canister of oxygen home with us because they still were 
a little bit thinking, well, she's she's on average breathing pretty well, but we just want to make sure. And remember too, those they don't necessarily go in the nose when they're very underdeveloped. They have to go down the nose and down the th- or down the mouth and then down. So that wasn't very exciting either to see that. And she kept pulling it out. <laughs> but but yeah, so that was a rough one too. Again, just it just paints a picture of what you don't feel is that stereotypical natural way that she should have come into this world. And I remember too, they made me sign a release because they couldn't find a vein because she was so small to put something intravenously in it. Like, I think it was just her medicine, but they had to put go in through the groin. And they said, like, you know, there are some risks and we just need you to sign this waiver. And I thought, I just felt already maxed out and I'm signing a waiver that something might go wrong so that, you know, you might inject, it might go into the wrong place or, or something like that. So just a lot of big decisions, a lot of, you don't have time. You just have to go quick. Yeah. So when you finally got out of that environment and you were able to bring her home, you said it was 40, did you say 43, 43, days? Mm-hmm. 43 long, days, long time. Mm-hmm. So how did you start processing? How did you start healing? So, yes, everybody thinks, at least I thought everybody thinks, that the stressor and the environment while you're in it is the time when you're stressed. But I learned actually through some, there was some psychological article or something that I read that said, it doesn't dump on you. The real work doesn't begin until you're in the clear, until that moment comes when you're home and you're breathing. Anything, bereavement, if somebody passes away, it's not the funeral and the arrangements. It's the day-to-day quiet after, after everybody leaves and you're home alone and you're missing that person. That's, that's when the real work begins to psychologically start healing. And the same thing was like that for us. It was, it felt like, go, go, go figure this out. The day she came home was just a parade. I mean, we were so excited, but then it felt like everything just kind of like you almost can exhale and then everything you're holding up falls, right? Because you finally have that moment to buckle your knees. So I found that, again, not necessarily the hardest part, but the part where the real work began to start healing was when I had time to start healing. And in that sense, the best thing that people could tell me during it, whether they were friends, family, NICU nurses, doctors, passing people in the hospital, what are you here for? I mean, anything and anyone were the stories that, oh, my daughter was smaller than that. Or, oh, we have twins and they, you know, they were really small and now they play football or something like that for me resonated more than the, I hate to say unwelcome, you know, we're so sorry. We're so sorry. That sounds really bitter of me to say that, but I'm sorry too. (laughs) You know, for some reason, some things really resonate. Some things ping off of you and they just, you don't absorb them. I found that the stories of it'll get better. Don't worry. This isn't that big of a deal. No, it is. It really is that big of a deal for me and for her. So I, I kind of reflected those ones off at the time. And even after we were home, because at four and a half pounds, we were not out of the woods yet. But then the people with the stories of, oh, you want to see, do you want to see a photo of my, of my son? You know, he was one pound. You could hold him in, in your hand and, you know, now he's 14 or something. Those were the things, and I'm sure everyone's different, but those were the things for me that I had to cling on to because I planned, I focused, this was going to be my life. This was my trajectory and everything went black and I could not shake that blackness away in the sense that I can't see where we're going. So the idea that people could tell me these stories, 
were like little beacons that I could just cling to, to the next one, to the next one. People have survived this. I will too. She will too. That was what got us through, at least for me. But that I would never, ever advocate anybody. Don't try to comfort people. I mean, they all need to hear it. They're just all going to react differently. Try it on. If they don't like it, try something else um, because they probably need to hear that support. Yeah. And I've been told by a couple of friends of mine who've either lost children or lost spouses that sometimes the best thing you can do is just go fold laundry. Just be there. It doesn't even take words all the time. Some people just need you to sit with them or... You know, and like you said, every single person is different. So that's right. That's absolutely right. And, you know, humor was good for me. It got me through. I mean, even making jokes about how how goofy the situation was, was really therapeutic for me. But ultimately, I, I had a good support system. My family rushed out and so did his as soon as she came home from the hospital. Because I think too, while I was there pacing around my house like a cat, just waiting for her to come home and getting it ready... I wasn't ready to be a new mom. You know, oftentimes new mothers have their mothers or their husband's mothers come to help just adjust because it's a new lifestyle, right? Well, I was I was heading into that too with a baby with you know on oxygen, and I remember the first night she was home with us because that's a scary enough situation as it is. I slept at the foot of the bed because we had her whatever it is, bassinet or whatever whatever you call it, like a pack and play, but for newborns. That was at the foot of our bed. And I could not hear her breathing if my feet were at her side. So I couldn't sleep. So I turned myself 180. And so my feet were in my husband's face, but you know, it's <laughs> a small price to pay so that I could be just truly inches away from her so I could hear her breathing because just the panic of the idea that she'd stop breathing that first night was just a, a very intense. Yeah. We, we had two NICU experiences. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, you can't wait to get out of there. Right. But then when you leave, now there's the, okay, we just left the premier facility with the modern equipment, with the life support equipment, the life-saving equipment, the very skilled people, very knowledgeable people, and help is, you know, a buzzer away or something to that effect to now we're back at our house. There's nothing monitoring the child except for you not sleeping through the night. And there's nothing that will help except a phone call and, mm-hmm. and wait for an ambulance unless it's faster to jump in a car and go, right? So That's exactly right. So, I mean, did you sleep that first week? <laughs> no, but would I anyway? I doubt it. So, <laughs> you know, just having a new baby at home. And apparently, yeah. for some reason, the NICU nurses don't come home with you. I find that very offensive, but Me for too. some reason, they're not coming home with you to keep, you know, a live-in, you know, support system to help you through it. Why can't this experienced professional stay with me? But no, it was fine. I did not sleep, but truly just who I am, I would not have slept anyway. So how did your husband do? I mean, was was Greg like, ah, she'll be fine. She's great. They gave her a clean bill of health. We're good. We're home. I'm going to wake me up if there's a problem. Genius. He was like that very carefully on the outside. On the inside, I asked him much, much later, and he was just horrified. He was terrified. He was going to lose us. It did not show for a moment. This man deserves an Academy Award. It was flawless. He was excited. A lot like my nurse that was saying, this is your baby's birthday. That's exactly the kind of tone and just attitude he had toward me. You know, he was texting his family with the thumbs up when I went into surgery, just holding it together for all of us. But again, I only found out later 
that he understandably was terrified that he was going to lose us. So well done, well done him. Because I mean, if he would have lost it, I don't know what brain cells I would have had left to lose, but I would have, you know, he was telling me to panic too. Yeah. So he, he maintained excellent composure throughout the whole thing. Absolutely. I don't know. Is, is he like an airline pilot or is, you know, some, something like that where he, he lives under stress all the time anyway, or uh, he's an engineer, so he's a math brain. So uh he was pretty calculated in this. Okay. There you go. Keep her calm. I know what she's like when she's already upset. So (laughs) very Uh, smart. All right. Well, good on him. Good on him. Good on him. Good job, Greg. (laughs) That's fantastic. So that first week when you were home, you almost were experiencing a brand new type of stress. Cause I know that when we brought babies home from the NICU who were far larger than yours were and less fragile, even though we'd had our issues, it was very stressful to adjust. So how was that? You know, I know you weren't sleeping and that kind of thing, but like as far as processing, were you even really out of the emergency enough yet to begin? Yeah, I think I was wrapped up in the duties then. And that helped me a lot because remember for those 40 days-ish, I mean, again, I was in the hospital at the front end of that too. So for about a month, I was truly pacing around my house without a baby that I knew I had in existence. So there was this feeling of, I guess, mental prep on my side of Okay, when she gets here, it's going to be, we're going to be washing, we're going to be, you know, setting up, we're going to be boiling the bottle, you know, the, the idea of the, the minutiae was something that really helped me through it. Because again, as a planner and an organized person, that comforts me to have that control. So I really, really fell into that kind of, you know, wash, maybe I'll wash the sheets again. My husband must have thought I was crazy because I probably was but maybe I'll wash them again. It's only been twice. It's fine. But that idea of just going from task to task to task, we didn't have any kind of a, like a doula or anything like that. It was just us. And then when our family visited, then it would be them just helping out. But we did everything ourselves. And if I didn't have that hands-on work to do, I think I would have been alone with my thoughts a lot more. And I think that probably would have been harder. Yeah. Yeah. So it was helpful, a helpful distraction maybe. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it felt like I was taking care of my baby in a way that I could, you know, as silly as it is. I mean, sitting there and holding her is definitely, it fulfills one part of my instinct to be her mother, but washing her laundry also fulfills that instinct of being her mother too, in some kind of controlled way. Yeah. It sounds like a really positive coping mechanism, especially when you still were in that adjustment period. Sure. I mean, we all do what we do, right? And then you have to look back and say, did I do that particularly well or not? And I, I mean, at the end of the day, I think our feet, as I say, the best way to put it is our feet were just moving. Our feet were just moving. I think our brains may have been in a fog and we didn't really know how to un- unpack it all. And certainly there were, there were moments and you know, where fear of her, you know, not getting through a night or whatever would just send me into a panic. I would just for no reason, because I think I was processing, grieving, and responding to something that was traumatic. And I think that that's fair. And I needed to give myself room to be ugly about it sometimes. Because if I just cover it up with only doing laundry and not, and not dealing with it, that's not healthy either. There has to be some kind of a line that you walk. And today we need to cry about it. And then tomorrow we need to ignore that feeling. I mean, there just has to be some kind of balance there. Mm-hmm. I like that you gave yourself the grace to follow your own lead to healing. 
Sure. Thank you. Yeah, we we did our best and she's fine now. She's she's six years old. I do see occasionally it makes me a little bit, I feel bittersweet about it. But sometimes if she's just lying on the couch or something, I look at her heels, like the bottom of her feet. And because they were testing her blood on a daily basis, she has many, many, many tiny little pinprick scars on her feet. And I'm sure she'll have that the rest of her life. You wouldn't know it if you didn't know what happened. But I just see those little, I just see those little dots all over her feet. And I think, wow, I mean, they must have, you know, hundreds of times over the 43 days that she was in there, but it was what was necessary. And if that's the best of you know what she has and those are her scars to carry, then more than happy. I mean, small price to pay. She'll probably never know. She wouldn't. I bet she doesn't know what it is now. I, I bet she hasn't even looked down there. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. If one day in 20 years, she's like, what is up with my heels, mom? Yeah. <laughs> You'd be like, well, let me tell you a story. My mom has told me many times that her mother used to tell her about raising me. Oh, she'll survive her childhood so much better than you will. <laughs> the mom always remembers what the kids don't. <laughs> That's right. That's a very, very different recollection, I think. I'm going to be telling her all kinds of stories. She's, again, she's very strong now. And remember, too, when a, when a preemie comes out, you have a lot of lifelong risk that maybe, I mean, that maybe would be higher than if a baby was born at full term. So you've got vision risk, right? Poor vision. You've got underdeveloped lungs, underdeveloped any organs. Obviously, small size and things don't matter as much, but if it starts infringing on your system, then you know there are issues. And for some reason, I have no idea why, I thank God every day, she is completely normal on all spectrums now. So she skated by with the vision, she skated by with you know underdeveloped lungs and things like that, her cognitive ability. I mean, these were real conversations that doctors were having with me. She may not have the cognitive ability of everyone else. I mean, we don't know yet. It's just that's what happens with preemies. I mean, these were real moments in our possible reality that we had to to accept. But fortunately, so far, everything is is great. And she's a pretty cool girl. I mean, I like her. <laughs> she's adorable. We got to meet her. So. We got to meet her. <laughs> Thank you. She was, she was wearing a, a unicorn shirt, if yes. I remember correctly. She's and I was so wearing cute. an Aquaman shirt. And I asked her who was on my shirt. And she's like, I don't know. <laughs> hilarious. She's like, I ain't never seen that guy before. <laughs> so cute. That was fun. She should know. She should know who Aquaman is. We read Marvel almost every single night. Every single night we read Marvel uh, books. But he had the old guy, not the new one. So maybe that was why. Cartoon version. When I was a kid, (laughs) the new one. So there you are. Well, that's fun. That's fun. You have been through so much, and I know you just have condensed so much wisdom already into this podcast. But if you were to say to somebody, you know, if you find yourself in really tough spot all of a sudden, and you just feel like your life is spinning out of control, you know, what system, I know people aren't really thinking about systems, but maybe if they thought of it ahead, what system might you say, maybe try this one, this could work for you. It worked for me. You know, what would you suggest to people? Yeah, really good question. You'll feel differently tomorrow than you do today. However you're feeling, that's okay. I, for instance, was not willing to hear pity at the time. I say pity kind of harshly. You can hear I'm still a little bitter about it. It's not personal. It's not them. It's not them trying to you know, look down on me or anything like that. I just felt like, no, enough. I don't need that right now. People saying, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. 
I wasn't ready to hear those things until I was. And so while I just respectfully, kind, I think, I hope, <laughs> who knows, but I, I just sort of nodded like, thank you, thank you, you know, moving on. I mean, I had a similar experience when a family member died. It's like, we're so sorry. We're so sorry. I don't want to hear that. Now, maybe some people do, but I felt irritated isn't the right word, but just stop enough. This isn't what I need. But later it started becoming a little bit more that I needed some support. So while I was very quick with my quills, right, to to turn away and say, get away from me, I'm not ready for this. It was then very clearly up to me to seek out the support that I needed and really take on that accountability for myself. It's easy for people to hurt and to not process and to sit there until somebody comes because you don't even know what you're going through. So how can you articulate it to someone else when you're in it? But I still think it's very, very important that we take the responsibility to seek out the support that we need and don't be ashamed of it. If you have to just talk to somebody or like you say, somebody just needs to sit with you and distract you for a little while, then that's the right answer today. You'll feel differently tomorrow. And just take that pace and that windy road as you go because nothing is ever a straight shot. I wish it was. Believe me, again, as a planner and an organized person, I wish some things were straight, just a straight and narrow path. They're not. So let yourself take the windy path because you'll struggle a lot less uh, if you do it that way. Yeah, that's really good advice. And again, that also falls a lot in line with giving yourself grace to feel one way today and one way tomorrow. And just to make sure you're aware of reaching out for help. Even if you don't realize how bad you need it, be open to it. Exactly. And, and well said. And similarly, we need to extend that that grace to the others who are trying, mm. who are trying. And, okay. and maybe they they don't know, obviously, what you're feeling inside. And they don't know what's going to land best as what's going to be helpful. But they're trying because they love you, right? That's right. That's and right. So, they're trying to connect with you. And, you know, you may slap their hand away. But, you know, if you don't take the time to, to work out how you guys can connect with each other, so many slaps and you're not going to, they're not going to try anymore. Of course not. So, you know, don't lose those relationships over it for sure. I mean, just, it's okay to not be ready, but then you have to make sure that you follow it up later when you are ready. That's all. And, and be good to people. I mean, it, I certainly probably had snapped at people or things or uh, whatever. I hope I didn't. <laughs> But, you know, maybe I did, but ultimately, you know, people were there and they withstood the storm. So that's on them. That's their strength. That's not my strength. So I really like how you pointed out that it's, you said your words, you said your quills came out and all of us have that happen. And the cool thing was those people were there because they loved you. And you said, and it was my responsibility to step back out and let them know when I needed them. And I agree with you too many times. The temptation is, well, if they really love me, then they're going to come check again. But the fact is they might be respecting your first initiative. And so it is a really good idea to just let that pride fall and just come to them and say, now I'm ready. I think that's such a good piece of wisdom that can go against what I think um, can become a common experience of just suddenly letting yourself sit there in misery when really you need the opposite. So that's right. Yeah, exactly right. So much good insight and such an amazing story and such a beautiful, you know, outcome. It's the story everyone wants to hear where everything turns out well. And that is a blessing (laughs) and so much wisdom to share from it. We really appreciate you taking all this time to share your heart and your experiences and um, 
I know a lot of people are are going to relate to you and understand, you know, I think you'll lead your story will lead to a lot of healing. Good. I hope so. That's the that's the whole point. It's the whole point. And it does get better. It does get better. Yes, absolutely. Right. So it, it works for everybody despite their particular circumstance, mm-hmm. right? Because grief is universal. No matter what the circumstance, the grief itself is a constant. It's the same for everybody. So, and there's no rhyme or reason to it, just like you said. <laughs> I wish there was. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness, Caitlin. Thank you so much for being here. We really do appreciate it. Yeah, and thank um, you. Yeah. And so I hope we'll be able to have you again and people can go and check you out and check out your podcast if they'd like to learn some cool stuff. And thank you again for taking the time to be here with us. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Thanks for listening and spending time with us today. If you know anyone who could benefit from this podcast, we would be honored if you would share it. Please rate, review, subscribe, and download. Head over to podcast.familysuccesssecrets.com to have a top-rated Family Success Secret sent straight to your inbox. We look forward to spending time with you again next week during our next episode. See you then. Bye, everyone.